Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will... He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the, let the habitants of Sela sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into, into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear you, deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger, whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give his ear to, will give ear to this? will attend and listen for the time to come. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In whose ways we would not walk in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So we poured on them so we poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of his and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your holy word. 
uh, this morning, and we uh, just cherish the opportunity to hear it preached um, from uh, from Pastor Josh, and we just ask that you would uh, fill him to overflowing with your spirit, God, that he would speak your word uh, with power and with clarity and with boldness. God, give us ears to hear and hearts to, to learn and be receptive and um, to be willing to hear and obey uh, your word to us, God, to respond with tender hearts. Father, we invite you here. We invite your spirit here. We love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning again. So we're making our way through Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. These are long chapters. They're amazing chapters. And to get through all of it uh, seems somewhat daunting. But I want, and I ask for God's help to do this. The song we sang earlier where the line went something like, Turn my eyes to see your face. That is, in essence, what I'm asking God to do this morning, that he would turn our eyes to see his face, and when we see him, that we would worship him as he's worthy to be worshipped, that we would adore him, that we would love him, and that we would worship him. The big idea I want to get across this morning from this chapter, Isaiah chapter 42, is that you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. This seems to be an inexorable law or principle in the Bible. Everyone is a worshiper. Without fail, everyone is a worshiper. And what you worship has a corresponding transformative effect on your life. But worship starts with revelation. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. It starts with revelation. We see something is valuable, and we become worshipers of that thing. Or when we see God as satisfying or, and valuable, we will worship him. After the first nine verses, when God shows us something amazing about himself, verse 10 says this. And I think this is the central verse of this entire Uh, At least our response in this chapter, sing a new song. So after the first nine verses, God is calling upon us to respond in worship. Now, singing is not the only form of worship, but we oftentimes correspond worship to singing. So it fits great. After the first nine verses, God is calling upon us to sing about what we've just heard, about what we've just seen. And if you move through the passage a little further, you see who God is calling to worship him. Notice in verses 10 to 12, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Kedar was a son of Ishmael. The, the people, of, the inhabitants of Kedar were nomadic people that wandered in the desert. So let those in the wastelands, like the desert, praise God. 
Let the habitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout for joy from the top of mountains. So God is saying the response of what he says earlier ought to be singing for joy. And not just, not just Israel, but all of the nations. He's calling on all of the nations to hear what he just gets done saying and respond in worship. Respond in singing. I love how it doesn't say those who have an extraordinarily good voice sing a new song. He says sing a new song. All of the nations, people everywhere. And the surprising thing is, even those who at this time are sworn enemies of God, he calls on them to shout and sing in praise. All of the nations of the world, those on the coast, those in the deserts, formerly, or excuse me, sworn enemies of God and his people, they're to sing and worship and rejoice. And as we come to the end of our passage, the irony, the tragic irony, is that God is calling on all people to sing except one group of people. You notice that? The Israelites seem to be left out of the singing, shouting, and rejoicing. We get to the end of the chapter, and Israel is called blind and deaf. God is going to do a new thing that will take the nations by storm, while Israel, God's chosen people, are seemingly left out. And it's because they become blind and deaf to God. Their senses have become deadened to their God, to the God who rescued them and brought them out of the land of Egypt and gave them his law. Verses 18 to 20, it says, They have eyes but cannot see. I'm summing it up. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but they can't hear. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Hear you deaf and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? And who is deaf? Or excuse me, who is blind as the servant of the Lord? Who is blind as my dedicated one? He's talking about his chosen nation, his chosen people, Israel, who find themselves with eyes. They can see physically, but they can't see God. They have ears. They can have a conversation with someone else and hear what's being said, but they don't have ears to hear the Lord anymore. Something has happened so that Israel, God's chosen people, have become spiritually blind and deaf. In 2 Chronicles 36, it goes through this digression of the people of Israel. Obviously, it had been happening before that, but kind of this climactic, I guess the climax is going up, but this climactic tragic response to God that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, especially Judah, was involved in. It says that they were following the abominations of all of the nations around them. In other words, they were worshiping the gods of the people around them, making sacrifices, bowing down and worshiping, whatever that looked like. They were worshiping false gods. God, full of compassion, it goes on to say, sent them messenger after messenger. He'd send them prophets. He'd send them people to, to try to help them see their error and their sin and to help them turn. 
but they wouldn't. In fact, it says that they mocked the messengers of God. They scoffed at God's prophets. And therefore, God, his wrath kindled against them and he gave them over to exile. He gave them over to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonian Empire. And we see that here. It says the Lord was pleased in verse 21 for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. You know, God's purpose was that through the Israelites, he'd bring them out of Egypt and magnify his law and it would impact the nations around them. But of course, that's not what happened. Verse 22, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They become plunder with none to rescue. Verse 23, God says, who among you will give ear to this? Will attend, or probably Isaiah, who will attend and listen for the time to come. Verse 24, who gave Jacob to the looter? Who did this? Why is this happening? You can imagine the people of Israel, God's people wondering, why is this happening to us? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? Verse 25 is a very sobering verse. So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and in the might of battle. It set him on fire all around. The heat of anger, the might of battle, the Chaldeans came against them. The Babylonians came against them. In the heat of battle, God sent this. God was doing this. But it says they did not understand. It burned them up, but they did not take it to heart. Why? Because they'd become blind and deaf to God. Their blindness and deafness to God has led to this judgment. But how did they become blind? How did they become deaf? Remember, they have eyes but can't see. They have ears but can't hear. I think the key verse is 17, which in your Bible, at least in my Bible, I have ESV Bible, I don't know what it's like in others, but in my Bible, verse 17, because, you know, translators, they kind of bracket verses together. They think go together. Verse 17 in my Bible is actually part of the previous section, but I don't think it should be. I think it's talking about God's people that he loves, and, but they've turned away from him. Verse 17 says, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods you become like what you worship what psalm 115 verses 4 to 8 says has happened to god's chosen people the israelites listen to psalm 115 4 to 8 it says this the idols of the nations are silver and gold the work of human hands they have mouths but can't speak they have eyes but do not see they have ears but do not hear. They have noses that don't smell. They have hands that don't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Israel become blind and deaf because they run after the gods of the nations around them. They become blind, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, just like these carved images, these metal idols of the people around them. You become like what you worship. Israel here is a warning to us that I want to come back to later briefly. 
Negatively, we, be, we become like the non-God thing we value most. Positively, we become like God when we worship God. We become more and more like him when we draw near to him in worship. So what do we see about God in this text? I, I want to spend almost all of the remaining, remaining time thinking about what this passage shows us about God. Because as the song said, my prayer as I'm saying this is, God, turn our eyes to see your face so that we worship you as we ought to. So what does this passage show us about God? So we can see him, be drawn into worship of him, and become like him. Now, I have about 30 minutes Roughly. I've been known to take longer, but I have about 30 minutes left, I think. And so I'm not going to exhaust this entire passage. All right. However, Mount Everest, you know, the biggest mountain in the world, can be known intimately only by climbing it step by step. However, if you move 10 miles away and get a panoramic look at Mount Everest, it will take your breath away. That's what I'm trying to do. Okay. 10 miles back from this passage, get a panoramic view. I view Isaiah 42, just like Isaiah 41, Isaiah 43, as like a Mount Everest chapter in the Bible. So what does God show us in this passage about him? Amazing things. Two things I want to point out, only two. And it's this. We see God in this passage that he is a singer. He sings. I asked Sabrina last night, I said, do you believe God sings? And she said, I don't know. I said, well, if I was able to show you in the Bible that he does, would you believe it? She said, yes. So I'm like, okay, good. That's a good answer. He's a singer. God is a singer. We see in this passage a singing God. And then we see in a, God, a, a God in this passage who is a warrior. He is a singer and he is a warrior. So one at a time, he is a singer. The first nine verses of our text today is the first of what are called the servant songs between Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 55. There are four of them. I think the next one's in Isaiah 49. And then there's one in Isaiah 52 that goes into 53. And then another one, I think, maybe chapter 54. It's a servant song where we literally get to see God singing, God rejoicing, God delighting, God Dare I say, worshiping, God exulting over something. He is a worshiping God. He is a singing God, and we see it gloriously right here. Jesus, or God the Father, is worshiping, singing, and exulting over his servant, we see. The first, the first phrase says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I need to pause right here because in these chapters of Isaiah, we're going to see God addressing a servant. And we need to know right now that it means one of two things. And I think the context makes it fairly plain. In fact, we see both of them in our passage here. God addresses his servant when he's addressing the nation of Israel, his chosen people, his servant, his privileged people that he had revealed himself to, given his law to. But then God also addresses, or in this, in this context, sings about and sings over his servant, 
who is a messianic figure, or we know Jesus Christ. So Jesus, excuse me, God is singing over, worshiping over his servant, who is Jesus Christ. And when we see this and why, my hope is that we will be moved to sing too. Whether you have a good voice or not, you will hopefully sing. So what is God so excited about? What gets God so exercised that he is singing in this passage? In a word, it is that this servant is faithful. This servant is absolutely faithful. Jesus Christ, I'm just going to say Jesus from now on, okay? This servant, Jesus, is faithful to do all that he was sent to do. Israel was a servant of the Lord. They proved unfaithful. We see that in verses 17 to 25. But this servant will be faithful in all he is called to do. So faithful to what? Faithful in what? What's he called to do? Two things I want to point out. God is singing over this faithful servant, Jesus Christ, because one, he will bring justice to the earth. He will fill the earth with justice. He will establish justice in the earth. Verses one to four, this is the key word, right? Let's just step through this real quick. Behold my servant whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he won't quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And the last phrase, excuse me, thus says God the Lord, verse 4, I'm sorry, I moved past. So in in verses 1 to 4, there are three places that it says the servant, who we know to be Jesus, will bring justice. On the one hand, this servant is gentle, so as to not break a bruised reed or snuff out a faintly burning wick. But he is also strong enough to overcome and bring victory over all evil in the world. So for the first hearers of this, the people that were in exile in Babylon, or I guess the intended original hearers of this, they were hearing this servant will come and he will bring justice. And no doubt they were saying, thank you, Lord, bring this servant now and overcome this thuggish Babylonian empire, these Chaldeans who are oppressing and afflicting your people. Jesus will establish the world in justice and Make no mistake about it, Babylon received the justice they deserved. And after them, Persia. And after them, Alexander the Great. And after them, I think, Rome. And every other tyrant since then, and every tyrant to the end of the age, will receive perfect justice. Justice will be established in the earth. This servant, Jesus, will be faithful to bring it. And so will every injustice that has ever happened on the face of the earth, including the acts of evil against you. We're not just talking about national, we're not just talking about like big things, right? National things, leaders that rise to power over nations. We're talking about every single act of evil, there will be justice for it. 
Amen? Aren't we, don't, isn't there something in us that wants that? Right? Isn't there something in us that we look around at the perversions of justice and we say, that's not right? Well, it won't go on indefinitely. But justice doesn't just mean overcoming evil. Biblical justice means more than that. It certainly means that's a huge part of it. But comprehensively, it means restoring wholeness to the entire world. And that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to restore wholeness to the entire world. And he's doing it right now. He's doing it in the way that he reconciles us to God and he reconciles us to each other. And he brings wholeness to us through his death and resurrection. Wayne Grudem says that biblical justice brings, perfect, brings about a perfect human society. So, so much for the socialistic utopia, right? It only comes through Jesus. A perfect human society only comes through Jesus Christ. No human government can ever bring it about. No matter how many social programs they try to institute, it comes through Christ. The cause of every widow and every orphan will be upheld. This servant is the only hope for a truly just world. He's the only hope for a truly just world. And he's the only hope for us to be changed, to be truly just people. He will bring spiritual forgiveness. He'll bring health. He will bring a just government into the earth. Verse 4 says the coastlands wait. I think NIV puts in there expectantly waits for his law. The coastlands, I mean, these distant places, they expectantly wait for his law. Regardless of your eschatology, and some of you may don't, don't even care about what, you don't even know what that word means necessarily, and that's fine. But regardless of your view of how things end on the earth, okay, if you're pre-mill, post-mill, whatever, okay, I think we all agree that the Bible is clear that Jesus Christ will reign and rule on the earth sometime. And he will do it with perfect justice and perfect righteousness. His rule and reign will be established here on earth in perfect righteousness and justice. His throne is built upon a foundation of righteousness and justice, and it will sit on earth, and he will rule here someday. And this text, I believe, merely echoes that same truth. Justice will be established in the earth. Jesus Christ will see to it. This servant, we know to be Jesus, is rejoiced over, and the Father's singing over him. His soul is brimming with delight in Jesus Christ because he will bring justice to all the nations of the earth. But the Father also sings and rejoices over the Son because he will bring light to the nations. Not only will he bring justice to the nations, but he will bring light to the nations. Israel had failed to be a light to the nations, to spread the worship of God to the nations around them, but this servant won't fail. He will be a light for all the nations and spread the worship of God from one corner of the globe to the other. Verse 
Verse 6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. He will not fail. God will take him by the hand and God will keep him. God will keep him from falling. God will keep him. He will be faithful. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. This servant will not fail. He will bring the knowledge of God to all the nations. This probably lies behind, or at least this probably went into the thinking of Jesus when in John chapter 8, verse, I think it's 12, Jesus pronounced to a group of people, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light of all the nations. He will bring light to the entire earth. This servant will be a light. Verse 7 says, in that he will open the eyes of the blind. Now, Jesus literally did this. When he was on earth, he would open up physically blind eyes, which I believe he still can do and still does. But I think this is primarily saying he's going to open up blind eyes in that he's going to overcome the blinding power of Satan in our lives. Second Corinthians 4 says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they don't see Christ and they don't trust in him. He opens up blind eyes. If you remember a time when you were not saved, and now you are. You remember a time when you didn't give a rip about Christ, and now you, with the eyes of faith, see him as awesome. He opened up your blind eyes. He gave you new eyes. He opened up the eyes that were once blind so you could see him. But verse 7 says he also brings prisoners out of the dungeon, which I think points to he liberates us from our sin. He liberates from sin. He brings people out of dark dungeons. Jesus came, right? He said in Luke chapter 4, quoting Isaiah 61, that he had come to set captives free. And verse 7 also says, from prison, those who sit in darkness, he gives revelation of who God is. Now, it could be easy to miss something here in that it's talking about nations. It's going to be a light for the nations. We just think nations, you know, we, we kind of, we look at a globe pops up in our mind and we think all these countries and nations and peoples in these countries. And that, of course, is true. And it's good to think that way. But we shouldn't miss something. Among the nations are individual people. And amongst all the individual people on the face of the earth, there you are. Right? He will be a light for all the nations, which are full of people, individual people, people just like you, and you. Not just people like you, and you. He will be a light for the nations of individuals, of individual people. God delights over the work of Jesus Christ to be a light for the nations, but also to be your light, also to be a light for you so that you don't walk in darkness, so that your eyes are open, so that you are pulled out of the dungeon. I, Paul says in Galatians um, 5, I believe, he says, you've been given freedom. Don't go back to slavery. And doggone it, we do that sometimes, don't we? We go back to the things that once enslaved us. 
And Jesus comes and pulls us out of the dungeon again as we look to him, as we trust in him. He is the light of the nations and the light of you. He is your light as well. God delights and sings over Christ, bringing, excuse me, opening your blind eyes, bringing you out of the dungeon and the darkness of your prison. God sings and rejoices over this. He sees you as once a blind person. Now you see, and we sing amazing grace, right? I once was blind. Now I see. We sing that. Isn't it amazing to think that God sings? He sings and rejoices over the work of Christ to open up blind eyes. I can't help but think of the song, and can it be? We sing it here from time to time. And one of the verses says this, Along my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was set free. And I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We sing this song, and I hope when we sing the song, we say, Amen. This has happened. God sings this song and says, Amen. My son has done it. Amen. They have come out and followed me. God loves what his son has done. God is so excited. Verse 8, which I think is almost a climax of this song. I just think verse 8, I, I, I thought a lot about how verse 8 went with the rest of verses 1 to 9. It almost sounds like a severe word, which it is, but I don't think it's just that. I think it's more than just a severe warning that God will not give his glory to anyone else. He will not give his praise to carved images. Well, flat out, that's true. He won't do it. But I think there's more there. This servant song contrasts the messianic servant, who is Jesus, and his faithfulness with the servant Israel and their unfaithfulness. So verse 8 is saying straight up, God will not give his glory to the false gods that Israel's worshiping. He won't do it. More than likely, they were mixing the worship of Yahweh, the true God, with the gods of the world's of nations around them. He's saying, I will not give my glory to them. I will not share my praise with these false gods. Straight up, that's what he's saying. But positively, God so rejoices in, in his servant Christ. He so exults in him that though he abhors the idols of the nations around and will share his glory with none of them, not an ounce of it, his servant, he will share his glory with because his servant is not another. Amen? Jesus and the Father are one. He's exalting over Christ, saying, I'm not going to share my glory with these false gods. I'm not going to give them my praise. But he's doing a new thing. And he will share his glory with his son, Jesus Christ. No doubt this connects with John 17, 5, when Jesus in his high priestly prayers, praying to the Father, he said, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you from the beginning. He and the Father are one. They, what Jesus' glory is the Father's glory and vice versa. And he will not share his glory with another, 
But Jesus is not another. He and the Father are one. So I think God is saying in a sense here, I hope I'm not reading this into the passage, but it seems like he's saying carved images won't get my praise. My glory will go to no other, but my servant is not another. He and I are one. He will do a new thing that will glorify me. This brings God great delight. The servant, Jesus Christ, will not fail. And God rejoices and sings. And so we see God is a singer. But he's not just a singer in this passage. We also see that God is a warrior. God's a warrior. He's like a man of war here in our text. With infinite zeal, God will defeat his enemies and save his people. With infinite zeal, God will triumph over all of his enemies and bring salvation to his people. Look at verse 13. It says, The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. I love what the NIV says. It says, He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. Verse 14 says, For a long time, now, Right there. For a long time, if you had been one of these Jewish people, one of these people of Judah who'd been brought into exile, and we know from the end of, I think it's Second Chronicles 36, we know that exile was going to be for 70 years. Let's say you're a young man, and you're taken away from Jerusalem, taken away from everything you've known, and you're brought to this foreign land, and you've been there 60 years. And you hear the prophet Isaiah saying, God saying through the prophet, for a long time, I have held my peace. Have you ever gone through something difficult, extremely difficult? And I don't claim to have gone through something, some things like some in here have, but you've gone through something challenging, something difficult. A week can seem like a year. A month can seem like a decade. And a year can seem like a lifetime. For those who are in exile in Babylon, 60 years perhaps, they hear the Lord say for a long time, verse 14, I have held my peace. They're thinking it has been a long time. It's been a really long time. Let's say you're that 20-year-old man. Now you're 80 living in a foreign land. You're thinking, how long, God? How long until you come? What comes after this is amazing. For a long time I've held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, now, I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. It may have seemed like that God was delaying, but his passion for his people was only intensifying as God says, now, like a woman in labor, I'm about to cry out and gasp and pant. And I'm coming for you. And isn't that amazing? That God, even here, even right now, sees you. In the last days, weeks, or months, or maybe years, 
that are beginning to seem like a lifetime and an eternity of anguish and pain. Be encouraged. What may seem like God delaying is only his passion intensifying until like a woman in labor coming ready to push out a baby, he cries out and comes to your rescue and delivers you. Verse 15 says that God will come with such power and force that every seemingly immovable object will be leveled and destruction will come upon his enemies. To what end? Verse 16. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn darkness before them into light. Feel like, you feel like the way in front of you seems dark? Or maybe just that it's been cloudy for a long time. He will turn darkness into light. The rough places into level ground. Just feel like it's rough going. He will level it out. And the thing, these are the things I do and I will not forsake them. God is a singer and God is a warrior. God the singer and God the warrior. So let the earth rejoice and sing and shout his praise. Now, I was tempted to not say anything about this, what I'm going to say next, but I just want to briefly touch on it. What about Israel? What about ethnic Israel? What about the chosen people of God that God raised, brought out of Egypt with a strong right arm? Is he just going to leave them? We end our passage this morning, this chapter, and it seems like Israel is lost. And to be sure, at this time, they, they were. Now, God, we know from history, and we'll, we'll see this more as we work our way through these chapters in Isaiah, God will raise up another servant, Cyrus of Persia, to judge Babylon and send Israel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. So there will be a a kind of salvation. There will be another work of reformation. We see that in Ezra and Nehemiah and somewhat in Esther. But it won't last that long. And what comes after that is a long period of silence. And we know that to, uh, that we know that in our day right now, Israel largely, not, not completely, but largely rejects Christ. They largely reject their Messiah. I don't think it's hard, I don't think it's wrong to say that largely, not completely, but largely Israel is still blind to their Savior, to their Redeemer, and deaf to his voice. So what about Israel? Has God utterly rejected the Jewish people as a nation? Is God going to overlook ethnic Israel? And I just want to leave it with this. And we're going, to, we're going to probably dig into this more in chapters to come, but the answer is no. We'll see in coming weeks that though Israel, even to this day, is largely unbelieving and obstinate to her Messiah, Jesus Christ, God is not through with them. And we should praise God for that. Because if God can't keep his promises to Israel, how can we be sure he can keep them to us? Right? All right, I want to end with this. How should you and I live in light of Isaiah 42?
I have six things, and I'll get through them fairly quick, but they're important, okay? In, in, uh, in words, just single words, resist, fight, come, wait, sing, and tell, okay? First, resist. Resist idolatry. Resist idolatry. Remember the tragic way this chapter ends with Israel blind and deaf, and let it be a warning to you. As it, ought to be, as it ought to be to me as well. We would be wrong to think that idolatry is only for the distant past and distant lands. It's not. Or we would be wrong to think that it's only for those who don't trust in Christ. And in just this amazing way, 1 John, the Apostle John writes 1 John, this beautiful book on the amazing love of God and how we can uh, be changed by that and love others is kind of one of the huge themes of that. And the book ends in the most abrupt way. You know what the last phrase of the book is? My beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. <laughs> I mean, he's talking to beloved children. He's talking to people that he loves. He knows, he knows them. He loves them. He views them as his children, spiritual children. He believes they, they know Christ, at least many of them. Keep yourselves from idols. Our hearts have a propensity to make idols out of many things, even good things. There are the obvious culprits of money and greed and possessions, sex, sexual addictions, things like that, right? Alcohol and drug addictions, all of those things, those are the obvious culprits. Those are the bad guys, right? The obvious ones. But also work, beauty, family, and even, ready for this? I need to hear this. Theology, spiritual experiences, singing songs. These things are not God. And anytime we make something ultimate other than God, we find that we ourselves are given over to idolatry. Anything we value more than God, love affectionately more than God, is a functional Savior. And it's easy, isn't it, brothers and sisters, to betray our lips with our lives. Say the right things. And I know this from personal experience, or right? I'm not looking out saying, you guys, you know, I'm thinking, ugh. So I simply repeat 1 John 5, 21. Brothers and sisters, keep yourselves from idols. Resist idolatry. Number two, fight. Fight. Our song we sang this morning, turn my eyes to see your face. On all my fears, surrender. Fight. Fight for what? Fight to see. Fight to see clearly. Verse 18 is very instructive. God calls out to blind Israel, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see problem is that they don't see. They don't see God as glorious. So we need to fight to see. God has sent Christ to show us what God is like. And so our greatest battle, perhaps, I don't want to overstate things, but our greatest battle, perhaps, is to see Jesus Christ for who he really is with spiritual eyes, 
right? Which is why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 for the people of Ephesus, God, I pray, or he said, he said to them, I pray that your eyes, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. The writer of Psalm 119 also said something very similar, except he just addressed himself to God and said, God, open my eyes that I would see glorious things in your word. So we need our eyes to be open. We need to fight to see. And there's so much eye candy around these days, isn't there? Television, billboards. We got our gadgets with us all the time. We maybe need to fight even more to turn away from certain things so that we can see Christ. So I would encourage you to make one of your prayers daily, to make one of your aims daily, to fight to see Jesus Christ with spiritual eyes. So make one of your prayers daily, like Psalm 119. Open my eyes, God. This was a believer saying this. Or like Paul, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, enlightened to see. He's praying for believers. So we need to fight to see. Number three, come. Come to Christ with your brokenness. Come to Christ with your brokenness. I love a passage that's quoted in Matthew chapter 12 that says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. Verse three is so beautiful. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he won't snuff out. Come to Christ with your brokenness. If you are battered, bruised, beat up, Come to Jesus Christ as your doctor. Come to him today. Come to him right now. And let me clarify something. Whether it is brokenness and a battering because of your own sin, right? You've made mistakes. You've made choices. Now you're suffering the consequences of them. A bruised reed he will not break, right? A faintly burning wick, he's not going to snuff out. He will deal oh so gently with you. Or if you're battered, bruised, beat up from another, come to Christ with your brokenness. Or if you're just beat up by life, it just seems like the waves of circumstances keep rushing over you. You can hardly catch your breath. Come to Christ a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will hold you, he will carry you, he will uphold you in the seasons that lie ahead. When Jesus Christ is presented in this way, we are being entreated to come in trust to him. Number four, wait for God's justice. Wait for God's justice. Deuteronomy chapter 32 says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When we're wronged, unless we, um, you know, really walking in the spirit, our initial reaction is payback, right? I'm not saying we're going to go punch someone, but we're just thinking, they deserve something for what they did to me. Retribution vengeance, wait for God's justice. Has anyone here ever felt or been treated unfairly? Raise your hand, please. Come on, so everyone can see. I think everyone here has, right? Is there anyone that hasn't? Don't, don't raise your hand, please. Okay. Wait for God's justice. You should care so much about 
justice that you leave it to Christ to take care of every wrong and not seek to be a vigilante, right? Doling out justice on your own. Vengeance is mine, says God. There are three times justice comes, excuse me, there are, there are times in this life that justice comes beautifully, doesn't it? And it's, it's wonderful to see that. God's justice is prevailing in this situation. I see it. Praise his name. You know, one, one example, when the Planned Parenthood in Ankeny shut down, I said, God, amen. Praise your name, God. Hallelujah. God's justice prevailing. But how many know that justice doesn't always prevail in this life? Many Christians suffer gross injustices that seem to go unpunished in this life. But I assure you, ultimately, they won't. Every sin, every act of evil, every act of injustice will be punished when it's all said and done. Now, I need to clarify something because I'm sure some of you are like, whoa, wait a second, but I've done evil. (laughs) I've been the perpetrator before. Okay, so let me explain. Every act of injustice, every act of evil will be punished either in, in one of two ways, either in Christ on the cross or in hell forever, right? Either in Christ on the cross. We believe that Jesus died. When he died on the cross, he was bearing not just my, my sin, but my punishment for all the evil I have done. So it'll be punished in Christ on the cross or in hell forever. So don't be a vigilante. Let the Lord dole out justice on the evil that has been foisted on you. Number five, sing, sing, sing. I hope we sing with a little more exuberance and excitement from this. When we're at home, when we're at church, when we're in the car, whatever. Okay, sing. For the original hearers, this passage was a hope of something future. It was hope Something future, this, mess, this messianic figure is going to come. He's going to bring justice. It was only hope. But we have the fulfillment, don't we? We don't just have hope of something future. We, we stand on this side of the cross and resurrection. We have the fulfillment. So we not only sing of something that may happen in the future, or something we hope happens in the future, or something we even know will happen in the future, we look at this servant who faithfully did all that God called him to do, and we sing and shout for joy. Don't we? Don't we? All right. Amen. We are not sitting waiting for this servant to come. Jesus has come. The father is still singing, but now it's not about what his servant will do. It's about what he's already done. It's about what Jesus Christ has already done. Christ has come, so sing a new song. And this singing has spread. This singing, I mean, literally what's going on, what, Jesus, what God says here, sing a new song. The coastlands, the nations, the desert places. This has happened. Think of what's happened since that remote hillside outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, to this day. The gospel has gone forth. The nations largely are singing and praising God, and it will continue until they all are. And even God's sworn enemies to this day bow their knee to Jesus in happy worship.
Amen. And if you belong to Jesus, the light of the world has shined in your, into your dungeon, dungeon cell and brought you out by the hand, having opened your eyes and taken the shackles off your hands and feet. Psalm 40 says, when this happens to us, God also puts a new song in our mouth. We sing the song, I waited patiently upon the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He pulled me up out of the miry pit and he set my feet on a rock and he put a new song in my heart. A song of praise to our God. So sing. What are you waiting for? Sing a new song. Number six, tell. Quick, real quick. Singing invariably leads to telling, which then leads to more singing, which leads to more telling, which leads to more singing. And God thinks that's really cool. So we should tell others about what makes us so happy in Christ. This is why worship must be at the center of who we are and what we do. Because we are not duty-driven people. We are delight-driven people. We have seen this king who has come and rescued us. And we get the opportunity to sing to him and about him and tell others about him. So you become like what you worship, either deaf, blind, and lifeless, or like God. We want to be like God, don't we? Don't you? Don't you want to be like God? So keep him at the center. Worship God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and become more and more like him. Keep Christ at the center and become more like him.